Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Kaderna podcast. I'm your host, Brian Kaderna. If you're listening to the premiere of this episode, let me wish you a very Merry Christmas, Happy Holiday, and Happy New Year. So today I'll be interviewing Eric Yeverbaum. If you're not familiar with Eric, let me give you a quick background. Eric Yeverbaum is the CEO of Erico Communications. He is a communications, media, and public relations expert with over 41 years in the industry. He's worked with everyone from politicians and celebrities up to companies such as Sony, Domino's, H&M, Ikea, and much more. Eric is also a best-selling author. He literally wrote the book on PR with the industry standard bestseller titled PR for Dummies. He has another six books out there, including Leadership Secrets of the World's Most Successful CEOs, which sold over 1 million copies. In our wide-ranging conversation, we'll cover everything from one of the launch points of Eric's career back in 1985 when he started Strike Back and rallied the nation to bring back baseball, which landed him in Time Magazine, all the way up to how to lead amid chaos, in particular the recent takeover by Elon Musk of Twitter. So without further ado, let's get right into it, and please welcome Eric Yeverbaum. Is going to require work and time and sweat and toil. If money wasn't an issue, what would I be doing? Don't worry about it. You'll figure it out. Change is the only constant. The Kadena Podcast. Eric, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm a big fan. Honored to be on. Oh, thank you. Thank you for the kind words. And I think, you know, your realm of, of PR is one that's got to be uh, con- constantly changing. I mean, all the things that you see in social media today, uh, and you have 41 years of experience. Is it safe to say it's a, a whole new world that you're dealing in? Oh, it's a whole new world. I mean, uh, you know, I've run three agencies. I sold my first agency 15 or 16 years ago, and Wall Street bought me. And uh, what I found out at Wall Street, which I didn't know, being sort of a rock and roll rebellious entrepreneur that I was, uh, successfully so, was on in, in Wall Street, you got to write business plans and you have boards and you got to present your business plan to the board. And this is 16 years ago. Um, the presentation that I made to the board in my second year was all predicated on the proliferation of digital and social media. And how literally what I do for a living, the ground was shaking under our feet. Information dissemination was going to be different. And I always say my board was a jury of my peers. They were all my age. And I literally said in this presentation, somebody's going to get elected president someday on Twitter. Someday is going to somebody's I literally and literally said that amongst a whole other a wide array of things that actually happened. My board, my peers, um, and when I say my peers, you know, we're older, we're not, you know, we we, we weren't born digitally. Uh, I, when I finished the presentation, they said, nah, that's not happening. We're not doing that. And, you know, that's when I left Wall Street and started the agency that I'm running now, you know, for the last 15 years, because I knew we were changing. The day Captain Sully landed that plane on the Hudson, I have six television screens on my wall. Uh, I'm a news junkie. I I mean, I have to be for a living. And and it's a hobby. I actually enjoy it, (laughs) believe it or not, even with what's going on in the world now. But when I saw on my Twitter feed the picture of everybody standing out on the wing on Captain Sully's plane, and eight minutes later I saw it on CNN, I knew that the way we got our information was starting to change. And and Twitter, as an example, which I know we're going to be discussing today, 
then what I would would say, and you know, to 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 a varying degree today, is a match that lights the news cycle. You know, literally, it happens on Twitter. It spreads all over the place. You know, very fast now. So yes, things are very different from when I started. And would you say that that's a a good thing or a bad thing? Because I know one of, the, and we'll get into this, but I know one of the gripes a lot of people have is trying to find true news and, and true oh, information. Yeah. And now it's it's like, who do you listen to? I mean, there's so many channels, there's so many social media outlets. It's just endless. Well, it's it's it's, it's very complicated. It's complicated by the whole notion of fake news, which is significantly greater than it ever was. And by the way, that's not a new thing. I mean, I had a very good friend. His name is Danny Schechter. Danny used to be a producer on 2020, long time ago, and I'm dating myself. But 2020 was neck and neck competitors with 60 Minutes. It was legitimate news. Uh, and Danny quit. And I said, well, Danny, what are you doing? You quit in 22? Quits 2020. That's a good gig. And he quit to write a book. The name of his book was called, now this is 35 years ago. The more you watch, the less you know. 35 years ago. That said, you know, the notion of fake news has very much been promoted. Um, you know, you got people being elected to Congress who just flat out lie and then tell you after the fact they just flat out lied. Fake news makes it even more difficult. And inaccuracies, you know, that they always did. The speed, the velocity at which we get our news, sane, it's coming so fast and furious. What's true? What's not true? How do we decide? How don't we decide? And then you got to throw in artificial intelligence. Um, artificial intelligence is basically our own unique algorithm based on what, we, what, what we're doing on our cell phones and on our, you know, uh, uh, any of our technology. What artificial intelligence is doing, and it, it's why it knows the weather on my route to work before I... I get up in the morning. I'm saying, like, how do you know I'm even going to work? Well, you know, my phone knows. Yeah. Artificial intelligence. What happens is, and it, and it strips away the way we used to make decisions. Because what I used to say, and I'm not, you know, I'm obviously not my quote, uh, taking taking it from somebody else. When you come to a fork in the road, take it. And when you come to that fork in the road, evaluate everything that you know experientially and from information that you take in. And go either right or go left. Your unique algorithm from artificial intelligence is taking you down paths you're already predisposed to going down. So there's no debate at the fork in the road anymore. For me, I have a dozen different trusted resources for information, and I got 41 years of actual experience. I throw that all together when I come into the fork in the road, and I decide which way I want to go. But my algorithm is really steering me in a certain direction because I would, I'm predisposed to going in that direction, which doesn't help. Yeah. And I think, like you said, your algorithm, as you kind of put together your viewpoint on the world, you've got 41 years of industry experience. It just made me think of, you know, what is the impact on, on young people coming up, young voters, college students, young professionals? Um, that don't have that level of experience. And it's like every day there's a new source that they're supposed to listen to. Well, here's the thing is, is that, you know, first of all, yeah, I mean, I, I tell the 20 year olds who work for me, I have an army of them. Um, I mean, they think they're, you know, just like I did when I was in my 20s, I was the greatest thing walking the planet Earth. We all did, I, tell yeah. the 20, I tell the 20 year olds, you know, you think you're so hot, you know, you're, you're so great. If I could, I would hire a five-year-old in a stroller, they're faster than you. 
look at the kids in the strollers with their iPads. You got a problem with your technology, give it to the five-year-old, they'll fix it. That's how they're born. They're born into a whole different world. They never had the type of communications experience, uh, you know, that many of us did growing up. I, when I was a kid, I was a shy kid. Um, I, if I wanted to dance with the pretty girl at the high school or the junior high school dance, I had to walk across the gym floor and have a conversation. I couldn't just text, get rejected and move on. I had to develop my, you know, social skills. You don't have to develop your social skills anymore. You know, it's all behind the, you know, the curtain of technology. So we don't have to talk. We don't have to, all, all of that's bad. It, it, it yeah. will definitely uh, make, uh, make it more challenging uh, for kids today to have any social skills whatsoever or develop. I, me, I'm personally, I'm grateful. Shy kid. Uh, what I say about adults, and I look at corporate America, is we all play like we played in the sandbox. It's still mm-hmm. the same. The bully was a bully in the sandbox. Uh, the gregarious, you know, kid in the sandbox is still the gregarious kid in the sandbox. We all behave the same uh, as when we were kids and we grew up, you know, accordingly. You know, now it, it started with text messaging and, you know, morphed into, you know, this wide proliferation of social media and this whole notion that everybody's happy all the time. Nobody is happy all the time. If you want to check out my social media, I look pretty happy all the time. I'm not. I'm like everybody else. (laughs) I got my ups and downs in the course of the day. I got my challenges in in life. Nobody's posting their problems on social media. No, no. Everybody puts their kind of their best presentation possible forward. But don't you think at the end of the day, we're all just humans? Like, you know, I get what you're saying, that the communication channel is completely different than it was just 20, 10 years ago, even. But aren't we all just kind of, you know, have the same human motives and human nature that we um, have always yeah, had? Yeah, we do. But we're 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 creating this, um, you know, in, in, in real life, I'm successful in real life. In real life, like I've built a lot of companies in real life. In real life, people have been in a room with me and been participatory, you know, in that process in real life. In so in, in social media world, oh man, I'm way better than that, except I'm not. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, I love to point out to people that, you know, don't measure, measure, it, 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 it's, it's me versus me. I just want to be, I, I just want to be a little better today than I was yesterday. I don't want to compare myself to everybody, you know, on Facebook or Instagram, whatever it is. And I am participatory. It's, uh, it, it's important that I understand them as a communicator. Uh, I use the different social mediums for different things. Um, all that feed into my, you know, agency life which I actually, I'm one of the, I'm not a hashtag. I love what I do. Although it's a hashtag, everybody loves what they do. Uh, Honestly, if you don't love what you do, you're in for a long, I mean, life's hard if you don't love what you do. And you're not, I don't think you're going to be successful unless you're lucky. If you can find something that you love, you're going to be successful at it. It might take some time, but you'll be successful at it. And what a better way to live your, you know, your life and your day. Yeah, without a doubt. That was well said. And I think, you know, going back to some of the social media and PR aspect of things, you know, the channels are changing quickly. Like we're talking about Twitter. Um, You know, I mentioned that uh, in the introduction. So Elon Musk paid, you know, what seems like a fortune to take over Twitter. And you see the way things change so quickly. I mean, just a couple of years ago, I didn't even know what TikTok was. Now, 
TikTok it seems like it owns the world. You could say the same thing years ago with Snapchat. It was that I mean, that seems like a hell of a risk for him to say, hey, I'm going to take this fortune I built and all these other companies and Tesla. I'm going to parlay that over to Twitter. And it's like, who's to say that Twitter is going to be the channel a year or two from today? Um, you know, what are some of your thoughts on that? Like, how do you well, give it me, staying power? Uh, let me just back up for one second and say that sure. when all of this started, uh, uh, I mean, people knew Facebook. People also knew MySpace. Uh, professionally, I invested my time learning uh, in Facebook, uh, not in MySpace. Had I invested in MySpace, where is MySpace now? It's it, it, it's not here anymore. I mean, well, I mean, it is. You just don't know about it. Mm -hmm. it, uh, it no matter what you're doing, if you're using social media professionally, don't put all your eggs in one basket. You know, here today, gone tomorrow. This is any of them, any of them. Uh, I said, you know, just just like as, as an investor, I have a diversified portfolio. I have risky, you know, investments and I have conservative investments. I, I, I make less on the conservative investments, but I make the risky investments. I lose a lot in some. I make a lot in some, but it's it's a diversified portfolio. Same way I run my agency. My agent, mm -hmm. my our clients are very, it's a very diverse group of clients. I'm, you know, immersed in professional sports. I'm immersed in, you know, finance. I'm immersed in development, especially in New York City. Um, I mean, I can go on and on about the different divisions that we have, the different areas of expertise. If one doesn't work, the other one, does, you know, in, in the yep. end with a diversified portfolio, we're always secure. It's the same in social <laughs> media. So, you know, fast forward to Twitter. Um and today, who in the world? I mean, Twitter was like owning the plant, you know, the universe. And Twitter gets, you know, Jack, Jack Dorsey, he was bounced out, comes back. Uh, uh, you know, Elon takes over. Look at it. What is Twitter right now? And where? What I what I've said about Elon is a lot of people have asked me about him for I don't know ever since he ever since he started talking about buying Twitter. Uh, he's mm -hmm. a smart guy. I sure. am still waiting to see what is his play here because there there must be one. It cannot be as foolish as it looks, you know. Uh, uh, you know, look, I I have no inside information whatsoever. I don't know anybody at Twitter. I don't know him. I have no yeah. clue. But it can't be as foolish as it looks. There's got to be something <laughs> more to it. Well, but right my, now, I... it looks pretty lousy. It, it it looks like a place to go and play that's, you know, the wild, wild west of misinformation to me. Yeah. And I think, you know, my hypothesis on it is when you see some of these just like these uh, icons, these billionaires, the Bezos, the Zuckerbergs, it seems like they're obviously not 100 percent driven by money. Um, and I think Zuckerberg, you see what, you know, I, I read a lot about him where he's starting to turn Facebook into meta and so committed. And you hear the passion when he talks about like virtual reality and some of their new enterprises where it, it seems almost like he's OK if he was to bury Facebook tomorrow, if he could prop up this new passion project. And I see that with Elon, obviously, he's talking about freedom of speech for so long, has his fortune with Tesla and elsewhere. And it seems like he's committed to, you know, I want to do this thing now. And Twitter is kind of the medium to get him there. When you talk about finance, I mean, what do you think of it? Do you think that that was a mistake, him buying Twitter? Um, 
it sure looks like it right now to me. I mean, $44 billion for a company that never made a profit. Look, this is the only, yeah. this is the single thing I know about business to be true. You got, if you're going to be in business, there needs to be a margin. You need to make money. It, the first internet, what we all should have learned from the first internet bubble and burst. And by the way, I learned this the hard way. I was, I had, uh, I was a I was a shareholder in ten different internet companies. Nine went Chapter Eleven. One Google bought. So again, thankfully, I had a diversified portfolio. That yeah. Google, that was Google buying a company that I was an investor in. That was a grand slam for the year. The other nine, I didn't get paid by. I mean, we walked yeah. away with. I don't even know what was owed to us. Didn't matter because of that singular success. Lucky, sure. uh, in, in part, and in part, diversified portfolio. Um, but, uh, when you buy a company for $44 billion, you're selling off stock from a company that's previously historically been successful. Uh, it's such a, I mean, it's a lot that he's selling off uh, to me. He's taking his eye off the ball. I get why he would have, I get why Twitter is an interesting thing to own, but it's, it's not a money-making machine. It's never been a money-making machine. And now it's worse because w one of the things that it's predicated on for income is advertising. And advertisers are scared, not all of them, but plenty of them. High profile advertisers are scared. They're losing all of that revenue. Uh, and, you know, we'll see. Uh, you know, it, it does seem to me because, he, he, again, uh, all respect to Elon. Um, for what he's done, I don't think what he's doing here is working. But I, I do think he's got a grander, you know, planned in mind, and having you know the town, you know the the, the town square of the internet sort of thing, um, with all sorts of moving parts, is is bigger than Twitter and could be a profitable endeavor, which Twitter still you know hasn't been and isn't showing that it's gonna be at least today. Yeah. And now, you know, you're, you're Erica, you're a CEO, you've worked with, you know, some top level CEOs around the world. What would you say, like, he comes into Twitter, says a lot of things, generates a lot of controversy, obviously, which Elon Musk is no stranger to. And then shortly it's thereafter, purpose. Yep. And, and then shortly thereafter, he goes and he just puts a poll up, you know, should I continue as the CEO of Twitter? I'm just going to listen to you kind of putting it up to like a broad vote. What do you think of um, the way that he handled that and some of these crises well, his, his, that he's encountered? The profile, not of all of my clients, but of many, and the profile of people that I have worked with, you know, for decades, uh, famous, uh, uh, incredible wealth, um, just live a little bit different than the rest of us. I had a, a conversation um, uh, with a really famous developer once. Um, and I said to him, uh, who, who I still work with, and I said, you know, uh, he has all these opinions about, you know, the world and the rest of us pedestrians who, you know, fill up our gas tank and actually know the cost of a gallon of gas are aware of, you know, what a gallon of milk costs, uh, uh, like many, you know, people in this country uh, worry about our mortgages and our rent. That's the real world. Uh, this particular, you know, client, not to be named. <laughs> I said, you know what? When you come down from your penthouse on the, you know, 80th floor, where you have the whole floor, 
and you're on private elevator and your driver and your bodyguard is waiting there and they drive you into the office and you walk into the office and breakfast is on the table and everybody bows to you. That's not the real world. You got to be in touch with real people because the masses, most of us are just real people in any given day. Most of us don't live like that. So to be in touch with, uh, you know, it's a big country. It's a big country. And uh, people live differently. And to understand that, it's very hard to do when you're taking your private elevator down to your, you know, uh, driver uh, uh, right into the office where everybody's bowing you all day long and telling you what you want to hear. This is the thing about that group. And I represent that group. Like, that's definitely, you know, the high and mighty, powerful, affluent mega wealthy uh, client that makes up, I don't know, two thirds of my roster, uh, people who come to me because they want my advice. And I'll tell you what they get, my advice. And the thing about it is, is, is that it's uh, depending on, I mean, I've traipsed in and out of history throughout the course of my career. Um, presidents, kings, CEOs. I, I've written books about Leadership Secrets was 100 powerful people, all of whom I spent time with uh, personally and professionally. In, 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 interviewed all of them. I actually interviewed 140 and cut it down to 100. Uh, the the ability to surround yourself, not always be, the, look, I'll, I'll tell you this about my career. If I'm not the dumbest one in the room, I'm in the wrong room. I love that. I can expand my horizons being in a room of bright people. Generally mm -hmm. speaking, uh, uh, these powerful people do have an inner circle. The inner circle is actually influential when it's not. And when they stop listening and when they stop getting advice that's when the problems start. And it does happen often. Now, in the case of Elon, you know, what, uh, obviously I'm biased. I do it for a living. But where's his PR department? Because the, the, the answer is gone. There is no PR department. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, they all got laid off. Who is the top person whispering in his ear about communications in general that he actually respects and will listen to. It doesn't mean always take certain, well, my clients do not always take my advice. They definitely listen to my perspective. You know, I'm, I'm wrong, I'm right significantly more than I'm wrong. That's what that, you know, that's why they pay me. That's why they, yeah. they're interested in, you know, what I have to say. When they stop listening, you know, when they live in their own little bubble, uh, that's when the problems start. And, uh, you know, it does feel a lot like that to me with Elon right now. You can't, uh, and I will tell you this, as a, you know, a four decade plus now, you know, uh, uh, PR practitioner, he's one of the people that I have watched and said, wow, look at how this guy, everything he does is intentional. Um, mm -hmm. The way that he, you know, he's like the puppet master with, with, with news. He, what's in the news is what Elon wants to be in the news. Most of the time, I think he might, not be feeling exactly that way at the moment but you know that the poll is a perfect example he does that literally to see a bump up in the you know amount of coverage that he gets he does it intentionally even losing 
he couldn't lose. I mean, he, he invented it that way. He created it that way. And I, I don't mean when he couldn't lose because people said, now you shouldn't be chairman. Now you couldn't be chairman is actually more newsworthy than yes, you should be. Either way, yeah, it's, you know, a win-win. <laughs> it's a win for him in exposure. And huh. it, it, that has certainly worked. If you follow what Elon says about Tesla and you follow their stock price, there is a correlation. You'll see these spikes they it, it definitely works. He does it on purpose. He, Do you he, think he's trying he's to drum up? It. Is he trying to drum up, you know, eyeballs and controversy and publicity for Twitter or for Elon? Or are they kind of one in the same? Well, I would say, you know, Elon's world is a big world and it's not only, you know, it's not only on Earth. Uh, you know, there's yeah, a guy who, who shoots, shoots rockets in the outer space. It's a big world for Elon. So, you know, I would say Twitter's part of his master puzzle. Okay. And I want to sidebar real quick, because um, I know a lot of the people listening to this are entrepreneurs, they are business leaders. And when you talk about getting into the kind of like rare stratosphere of, of the highest of the, the 1% of the one percenters, if you will, two questions I have on that. One, how do you get in with that clientele, which you may have hinted at that they have an inner circle that you actually coordinate with. And two, how do you speak with them? When you go and you're meeting with a president or a king or or a high-level CEO, are you just Eric talking with them or does the tone change at all in how you communicate um, to that type of person? It, it's, you know, I, I would say I'm not a name dropper, <laughs> but I definitely am. Um, honestly, <laughs> but I don't talk about my clients. Um, it, I've walked into rooms. Here's the thing about what I do for a living. It's it's not rocket science. Thank God. I, I couldn't do it. I'm not that smart. I'm, uh, I have great intuition and I have a great street smart about me. Uh, I'm able to uh, translate that into really great advice. How did I get in the room, you know, with kings and presidents? How did I do that? I worked my way up. I worked, you know, my backside off, which is not a popular philosophy anymore, I guess. I'm still doing it. I worked really hard. Um, I wrote books. Um, the books didn't hurt. I've been in the news my entire career. That doesn't hurt. Uh, and I was very comfortable because I was exposed to this level of individual as a kid. As a kid, you know, I ran a, I ran a traditional PR agency, uh, which is really hard work. I, I run a different type of, you know, operation now. Uh, and I always lamented over the fact, why is it that uh, I can't have access to the CEO? I got to, we get hired by the director of PR, who reports to the senior director of communications, who reports to the vice president of marketing who reports to the senior VP, you know, of marketing who actually sits at a table with the chairman. I want to be at that room. Why can't I be in, in the room with the chairman? Because the chairman actually makes decisions and they have to make them quickly every single solitary day. Why can't I be? Why am I on no boards? Well, you know, because uh, nobody in PR is uh, this 25 years ago. I spent my uh, a good part of my career mastering the art of leadership um and uh, the first chairman who ever like tr trusted my point of view was tom monahan tom monahan domino's pizza was one of our first national clients uh tom and i couldn't be you know we, we couldn't be more different he spent quality time with the guy with long hair and pierced ear and 
Tom is not a long hair, pierced ear sort of guy. This is when he owned Domino's Pizza. Uh, he owned the Tigers. I mean, you know, he was a very, very successful guy. We spent quality private time together. And he trusted my opinions, which emboldens, you know, gives you confidence when you're a kid and you're, you know, you're on somebody's private jet uh, who's, who's taking your advice. He didn't take it at first. I had to earn it. When I earned it and when he started taking my advice, it was never like we were ever going to be the same. We're not. We're very different people. I know about one thing. I don't know about nothing else. I know about communications. Uh, I don't, and I, I don't try to pretend like I know about other things. I'm gifted. Uh, press has called me savant at, at that. That's all. Having that sort that level of confidence as a kid, and I'm in my 20s when, you know, he decides to take me seriously. And the stuff mm -hmm. I did for Domino's Pizza in the 80s was, I mean, you know, they still talk about it today. I mean, when we when we created the pizza meter, uh, which was something that Tom was completely he, he vehemently opposed to, he said it would never work. Um, and accurately predicted the start of Desert Storm, which would be sacrilegious today. Because of pizza orders to the White House, we knew they were ordering a lot. They were really up late the night before. We called it from pizza deliveries. Uh, Saturday Night Live did a skit about that. Nightline did a really in-depth piece about that. And everything in between. It was everywhere. The pizza meter became a way to, to put our finger to the pulse of the country. Who was tipping better during a Super Bowl? When Dallas would throw a touchdown pass, everybody in Dallas was tipping better, you know, right after the touchdown pass. And, and, and they were ordering a lot of pepperoni. We could make all sorts of correlations. We did that for 14 years. If a late night, it, 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 this is back in the day, if, if Carson mentioned it in his monologue or anybody on a late night show, the, the direct correlation between pizza sales and a mention on a late night talk show was like that. Sales went through the roof. All we needed ever was to get on a, one late night talk show mention in an entire year. And we did, we would do anywhere, uh, we'd do a half a dozen in, in a year. But one single mention would be enough incremental pizza sales to pay for us for the year. You get a lot of trust that way. So show, showing, and, and that was something that he didn't believe in, and he took a leap of faith and let me do it. It worked. Uh, in in my industry, you know, there's uh, PR people are a dime a dozen. Pardon, pardon the diss to all my brethren in, in, in PR. There's a million of us. What's the difference from one to another? Everybody, I mean, if you're good at this and you have longevity or the long game, you get exposure for your clients, which is great. Okay, they're in the paper. They're on the, they're on the TV show. What's more important and, and what I learned over the course of my career is where's the, what happened to their cash register? Because you can get your client a lot of exposure. If their cash register is hurting, PR always gets cut, always. If, the, if you're getting exposure and the cash register is healthy, you can keep your job for life. My average client stays for 12 years, 12. It's unheard of in this industry to keep a client that long. And because of that very simple philosophy, that's what I do. You know, I mean, you know, now we're more of a venture firm. We're involved in all sorts of things that we have equity, almost everything, actually. We have equity. We have a part of the business that we represent. It's part of how we're, we're compensated. I know how to make money for clients. If I can do that, they're staying. 
Yeah, then you're good. And if I could just interrupt on one part of that. So when someone, whether it's Jay Leno or getting to Oprah, like you said, you get that mention, all of a sudden you have a huge pop and it's kind of like your client is on the map. Is it usually that that is brought to uh, the late night show host or to Oprah or do they find it because you had some sort of content that went viral? It's a combination of the two. Yeah, the very first time I had somebody on 60 Minutes, um, and this is a family that I've I've worked for this family for 40 years uh, in some really, really major, major uh, projects uh, that I'm very, very proud of. And my relation, I I mean, I feel like part of the family. I I have multiple clients like that I've been with for decades. It it almost feels like family. uh, the first, and, and, and this story is about one of them. The first time that I got uh, him, uh, him on 60 Minutes, the first time I ever worked was 60 Minutes. It was just in this, it was going, you know, it wasn't like Morley Safer was returning my phone call. Um, and I had this debate with this client. The Amtrak Train Magazine wanted to do a story about him. And he said, nah, nah, too small. I'm not doing it. I'm saying, no, 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 you got to do it. You do the it's it's the same thing with the New York Post. I, I, I take the subway in the morning. Everybody's read the New York Post, in, including some random Good Morning America producer who's getting their news from the New York Post. As as a commuter, I realized if you get in USA Today, it's like radio script for every who's a commuter and listening to the radio in their cars, which people actually still do. Uh, get it. Print usually leads to broadcast. So you want to you know if you get print, you'll get broadcast. The Amtrak Train Magazine got me the first profile I'd ever got for any client on 60 Minutes. Uh, Morley Safer said it was the best piece he ever did in his career while he was alive. And it was it was a 20 minute puff piece that was fabulous, all based on things that you know came out of stories that were written about this particular client. So I didn't know Morley Safer. I, for that matter, I knew nobody. When I started uh, my business, that's what everybody would say. Who do you know? I'm like, I don't know anybody, but I can I can make national news. And we, my partner and I at the time, this is my first company, uh, which I sold. You know, that was the philosophy. Tell us what you're trying to accomplish. Uh, we will get you media exposure to accomplish that goal. The goal is always at the end of the day as a cash register, no matter what anybody says, they want them, they got to make money mm-hmm. from their exposure. And and the question always was, and I didn't have any big clients when I started that you would have ever heard of. I did have, I had four um, Domino's Pizza, fran- uh, fran- one franchisee in Washington, D.C. He had four locations. Um, they were all struggling. They were all, you know, about to go out of business. It became the number one market in the country for them, which is one of the ways that I got the, the national account. I had the guy who... Uh, brought the wacky wall walker to the United States. Nobody ever heard of that until he sold 400 million wall walkers and uh, bought multiple uh, art collections, all of which are successful to this very day. And I had a client, a, a powerful DC lobbying firm that fired me, you know, four, four months in. I didn't know anybody. I didn't have big clients. I hadn't written any books at the time. I was not high profile, but I had this philosophy. Uh so what my partner and I decided to do is, well, let's show this is what we sell. Let's do this for ourselves. In 1985, we formed a National Citizens Action Group uh, to protest the Major League Baseball strike. It was called Strike Back. Um, we wanted to send a message to, uh, to, to Major League Baseball. Uh, there was a, a pending strike. 
the message was, it's okay if you want to go out on strike. Rich owners, rich players. Ironically, I do a lot in sports now. It, but if you do, when you come back, our group, we're going to strike game for game. So God bless. Everybody do what you want to do. When you come back to play baseball, we, we, we'll be striking an equivalent number of games. We call what do you mean by that? What, What's that? What, what did you mean by that? You'll be striking. Not going that. to games. Just not showing up that group. No fans. We're not going to baseball games. Game for game. Okay. We called Uberoff, who was the commissioner at the time. Of course, he doesn't take our phone call. And we asked people to send us a letter, a letter of commitment. We got hundreds of thousands of letters. There was protests in every single solitary Major League Baseball park except for Montreal. Um, uh, we were on everything. Uh, you know, I did Larry King and Nightline. I, uh, I was on the cover of USA Today. Time magazine pulled a profile about us because the because the strike ended so quickly. Um, and we used to take the mail, the letters that we got every single day and like literally dump the bags of mail on the commissioner's doorstep because nobody was letting us in. And CNN <laughs> would be there every single solitary day with all the mail we got. So all the people that were committing, the protests are happening. Major League Baseball invites my partner and I into the baseball negotiations, which only lasted two days. Uh, after the baseball negotiations, there was three press conferences in three different rooms, the players press conference, the owners press conference and the fans press conference. We became the voice of the fans. Uh, after the strike ended again, two days, which I was kind of bummed about because we were getting so much exposure. <laughs> yeah. um, it, it was it, uh, literally like time. had just finished. The, the photographer had just left our place. The story is like, just wow. I'm going to be in time magazine profile. Like, what yeah. else am I going to do in my yeah, pretty career? Cool. This was just to show everybody what we could do. Um, after the strike ended, uh, Uberoff, uh, Peter Uberoff's press conference, the commissioner of Major League Baseball said one of three reasons the strike ended so quickly was they were concerned about the fan sentiment and what we were doing. Bam, you know, we're on the map. I got three national accounts from that exposure. That, that's my cash register. That was the point of the exposure. I didn't say, hey, I do PR for, I didn't, you know, it wasn't like I was selling my company, but I mean, Larry King asked me, Ted Koppel asked me in the course of an interview, what, why are you doing this? Like, it seems like a bit much. It's like, well, no, this is what I do for a living. I get my clients on te television, radio talk shows. I get them in newspapers and magazines. I'm just using the same avenues as I would to promote any of my clients, none of whom you ever heard of, it, to, to promote a cause I feel so strongly about. We got three national accounts from that. That's what Was that like the launching point? That. What's yeah, that? That's the launching point that you think that's really what did it. Well, I mean, I, I was a I was a fledgling, you know, five person, you never heard of us agency. Started my company in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill. I just want honestly, when I was a kid, one, I, I wanted to wear sneakers to work, which is as shallow of a reason as you can come up with to start a company. But it's true. I didn't want to I want to wear sneakers to work. Um and the big goal was, will we be able to pay the bar bill at the end of the month? That was it. I needed to make enough to pay the bar bill at the end of the month. Um, but we were good at, you know, what we did. You know, this is 85. That was we were national news. We were on absolutely everything. And we got big accounts as a result of doing that. That's awesome. Uh, and so, yeah, that put, you know, that's, that's one of three things that put me on the map. I mean, my, 
longtime association with the Young Presidents Organization because I was fascinated with leadership. Wanted mm-hmm. to, I want, I'm, I'm, I'm on a bunch of boards right now. I mean, I have been for a very long time. I have a seat at the table with the CEO. That was the goal. Uh, I did that through YPO. And some of my you know, clients that went from obscurity to fame when I was younger, those three things, That's the that was the three ingredients. But Strike Back put us on the map. Got it. That's awesome. And kind of a question, I don't know how, how to really segue into it, but a lot of people can confuse PR publicity with marketing. And you said, you know, usually you're trying to reach out to this guy. He's a part of the marketing department. It goes up the, the ladder, you know, is marketing, I guess, advertising and PR kind of like these events or these things that just kind of capture the attention? Well, yeah, I mean, PR is just one part of the marketing mix. It can It's a very mm-hmm. powerful part if it's done right. And it's significantly cheap. You, I mean, you can buy a million dollar ad. Um, or you can have a million dollar budget for the whole year for PR, you know, one ad or one whole year. But that's only if you have PR that works, PR that gets traction and does more than gets traction, impacts your bottom line. Uh, but yeah, PR is it's, it's just one part of the marketing mix. It just happens to be a really cost efficient one only sure. if you have a uh a, a practitioner or an agency who is consistently good at it. It's not a, I tell you that story about 1985. I could tell you a, one story every single solitary year from 85 uh, that was as successful as Strike Back was, not necessarily for myself, although I've been in the news for 40 years. I mean, it's one of the reasons that I wrote books on purpose. When I, sure. I, I'll get back to you, which McGraw Hill, we were talking about before we went on air, uh, yeah. that McGraw Hill did. Uh, was a New York Times bestseller for one week. So that's it. One week. I got on the bottom of the list. I'll get back to you, but a way to get your phone calls returned. I got a, you know, we got a national hotel chain from the exposure that I got from that book. You know, what I say to all authors and, you know, and I've written seven books and some have been very successful is don't quit your day job. Um, mm-hmm. books are the greatest business card you will ever have. And the exposure that you can get from them, I mean, the and the credibility that comes along for it is is magnificent. Uh, but you know, don't don't quit your day job. Certainly. And to that point, I mean, obviously you've done a lot of influencing in your career. What's your take on influencers in today's day and age? Uh, um, <laughs> you know, ne- necessary evil. I mean, the thing yeah. is about influencers is, is that, uh, and I, I, you know, I don't know what the history of this is or whether it'll trace back to the Kardashians as, you know, a starting point. But, you know, certainly a perfect example of, I mean, the what the Kardashians have done. I, 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 I got a call from a card and my son who was little at the time sitting in my office. I get a call from one of the Kardashians about a project that she's doing. I have no idea who she is. Um, and she's like miffed about this. You don't know who I am. It's like, I know your dad, like your dad was one of OJ's lawyers. You guys are like a big deal now. Like, no, I didn't get the memo. I must've missed all of that. Um, but you know, uh, everybody's using influencers now. Um, and you know, you know, God bless the influencers that, you know, they can make, you can make money doing that. Uh, it's, you know, it, 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 they're part of the marketing mix now, too. Everybody wants influencers in their camp. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's wild because a lot of them, it's like, how's this person an influencer? Like, it's you don't even know who they are, and then it's oh, they got two million views on whatever, and all of a sudden they're they have credibility of some sort. Well, I, you know, I've maxed out before TikTok. Yeah. <laughs> I like TikTok phenomena is like. I mean, look, if you're if you're, you know, there, there are places that it makes sense. Like if, you know, if you're in music, you know, if, if you're a talented artist, you can do you can you can cut out the record label. I mean, basically, yeah. it's a mm-hmm. it, it's a very different paradigm um, because of the uses of social media. And there are some really good you know, uses of it. But, you know, the the the, the influencers are interesting to me uh uh, academically and because you know of course i have to deal with influencers i mean when we opened or helped to open one vanderbilt uh summit um i don't know if you've heard of summit summit was uh and and if you haven't or anybody who's listening check it out you definitely want to go to summit uh one vanderbilt is um it was it's the it was opened right after the pandemic it's connected to grand central uh, grand central beautiful beautiful building 97%, you know, most expensive per square foot real estate in Manhattan. On the 92nd, 93rd, and 94th floor, they have something called Summit. Um, Summit is, it's mind blowing. I mean, and and the huge tourist attraction now, it's sold out seven days a week. Uh, The number of influencers that we had in there, and still do, everybody wants, it was the most Instagrammable location um, in the United States in 2022, which you know, it was one of the goals. We and, and we sort of knew that would be the case. Uh, so, you know, an influencer uh, part of your macro strategy was important to this day. Inf- we we love we love influencers in there. They take pictures. They 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 TikTok. They they yeah. put the stuff on their Instagram. They got three million people that are you know liking it or making <laughs> yeah. comments about it's it. Crazy or buying tickets. It works. Yeah. Yeah. If it works, it works. And I wanted to ask you, um, you know, one of the books that really caught my attention when we were, uh, you know, before the show was your book, Leadership Secrets of the World's Most Successful CEOs. What did, what, did you have any big takeaway or kind of, you know, light bulb as you were researching and interviewing for that book that, um, you know, I'm sure I, you got to read it, but that you could share with our listeners. Yeah, you got to read it. I'm not giving any secrets. You got to read it. <laughs> um, no, I'm kidding. Uh, it, the interesting thing, you know, about it, I mean, there was a few takeaways that I got, but uh, I spent quality time with a lot of people in that book. I had dinner with their families. Um, I saw the way that they lived. Um, I saw the way that they, you know, led. I mean, you're talking about people like Kent Cressa. He was the at, at the time he was the chairman of Northrop Grumman, largest, you know, uh, largest military contracts in the world, uh, uh, number one supplier of the U.S. military. Uh, you know, that's a country unto itself, North of Grumman. I mean, I it, it, it's it, just being in their offices is crazy. Uh, you know, it, and, you know, I can go one by one by one. I had music moguls in that book. I had uh, finance moguls in that book. I had philanthropists in that. I had the most fascinating people and. One one of the things I did find the people who led by example seem to have an easier time. Uh, mm-hmm. I did find the people who would say, you know, the buck doesn't stop on my desk. It starts on my desk. This is where it all starts. The leader sets the tone for the whole company. 
And, you know, uh, in a previous life, what I was most best known for was crisis. Everybody knew if there's a fire, walk into it with me. I promise you, absolutely, 100% of the time, we will all be walking out the other side. None of us is going to get burned. That's what I did. And everybody, I wasn't trying to sell it was, it was, you know, this is authentically, genuinely, transparently how I felt. I knew I could figure out how to come out the other end of the fire every time. And I knew it was hot in there. Always was. I just wasn't ever frantic about it. People do follow the leader. And, uh, you know, uh, successful companies have great leadership. Yeah. And to that point, and maybe to kind of use uh, Elon Musk has been like our uh, focal point of the day. When a company is is in this sort of crisis or what appears to be a crisis, um, any tips that you have as far as replacing a CEO or a leadership structure or, or what have you seen where um, it's been well, successful yeah, or where yeah, have you seen yeah. it go south? Frequently. Um, yeah. You know, Twitter's going to be under a microscope. I mean, if you look at all the rumored candidates for, you know, this for this quote unquote job, you know, they're they're all interesting um and I, I i'm gonna guess just rumors uh i think that uh, i think right now it's, it, it's kind of important that elon does a better job of controlling the narrative i do believe he probably doesn't want this job he's probably realizing like there's other places to put my energy i'm always going to own this platform but i don't need to be you know i don't need to be sleeping in this particular office every single night or even showing that as an example to me, that's not great leadership. Asking, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I tell my people all the time: when you, when, when you're off, turn off. Uh, otherwise, you could work seven days a week. Now, I mean, you know, the the pandemic changed the, the ways that we work, in some ways better, in some ways worse. Uh, you need to, you know, you can't work all the time, uh, and. Uh, this is, you know, the spotlight's on right now, as it will be in the transition, whomever it is. Uh, and I think they need to control the narrative much better. And, you know, when when you make a statement that, you know, I forget what his words exactly were, but more or less, who's ever dumb enough to take the job or would, would even want the job? Like, eh, I don't know if I would be approaching it quite that way. Yeah. Yeah, and it, when you go back to, I was just looking at uh, to, when he said controlling the narrative to see what what Elon's doing, and just in the past eight hours, he's got a whole bunch of tweets about SpaceX and, and some of their accomplishments and what they're doing. One about being brainwashed, and then another tweet just that they're going to release the Twitter files. So it does seem like there's there's so much out there that's going from making a mockery of something to something so astounding as SpaceX. Um. You know, you think that he's not being as calculated as he once was? Is that the problem? Um, I, th you know, look, everybody, you know, he's he's human. He's he's a bright human, but he's human. I I I think he's spread too thin, and you know, it, it, it's it. Look, you know, I want everybody. I I don't want people sleeping in the office. I want them to go home and have dinner with their wife and kids. I want them to have a great social life. I want them to have fun. I want them to exercise. I don't want them sleeping in the office and working 24 hours a day. And, you know, today I, I got news for Elon. Today's youth don't want that either, whether they're Silicon Valley or not. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that he's spread too thin. 
and it's not working. That's interesting. And anything, um, you know, Eric, that you can share with our listeners that, that we didn't touch on as far as kind of, you know, things you're involved with right now that are, are noteworthy or just perhaps advice you have, you know, for people that are kind of navigating all this, they're leading companies through a new age of social media. And like you said, they're trying to get the best out of their employees, but they, these employees have a lot of power in a tight labor market. They want flexibility. They want balance. You know, mental health is the buzzword. You know, it's, yeah, I think for a CEO or a leader, mental, it's a lot. This is the thing about mental health being, you know, buzzwords. It's not buzzwords. We don't have a labor force without, you know, good mental health. And, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a therapist. I, I want my people to have great lives. I don't want them um, uh, to be mentally unhinged. Uh, there's, you know, mental illness. It's understandable. We, we've just been through a pandemic. We were all under house arrest or some version of it. And some of us got sick. Some of us got sicker than others. Some of us lost people. This is a pretty damn crazy time in history. Um, and, you know, one of the things that uh, you could say that, you know, about all of history. I do think that it's we've never seen times like this and taking care of each other, uh, empathy, having the ability to look through len the lens of the other person. Are you interested in what I'm I'm a PR guy? Was I interesting in this hour? Did I look at you and figure out what are you trying? What, what, what would you like to get out of me? Because if I did that, we have we, we just had a really productive hour. If I didn't, I just bragged about myself. And the only one who cares about that is my mom. <laughs> got it. Got it. Yeah, empathy is definitely a key ingredient. I don't think anyone will argue that. And look, and here's the other thing. Uh, now, I, I, you know, I'm 41 years into running agencies. A lot of people work for me in 41 years. Every decade, I, you know, I'm always shaking my head thinking like, what are these kids wearing now? Like fashion, just as an example. Everything changes more or less every decade. And it's not fashion. That's shallow. It's how do they think? How are they wired? What is the world that and the way that they look at it? It's more important to understand that to, rather than just shaking my head and saying, like, what the hell? Like, I just worked my ass off, pardon my French, yeah. my whole career. They don't want to do that. How do you get the most out of, you know, your workforce? Understand the way that they look at the world. They're not right. I'm not right. Somewhere in the middle, we can all have a better life and a better day. I like that. And I think that can kind of put a bow on it where we started with, you know, how times have changed. And I go back to that saying, you know, the more things change, the more they seem to stay the same. Um, would you agree with that? Or do you think that with social media, with technology that that we have kind of come around a bend here where people are being raised digitally and it's like a new a new world. Um, order. Yeah, but, you know, they used to say this about television, you know, yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. You go back through history. History repeats itself constantly, you know, on on at, on, on different levels for everybody who hates social media. Sorry, I got news for you. It's here to stay. For everybody mm -hmm. who hates digital media, same deal. We are it, 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 we're, we're surrounded by the ways that we get our information. You know, our watches are monitoring our every step. There's some here's the thing about technology today. It's here to stay. It's only going to get faster and it's only going to get, you know, it's only going to get smarter. 
we as human beings need to use so social and digital media as opposed to we being used by it, which is what uh, I, I would say a vast majority of social digital media is. It's using us. We're the product. Yep. If you can use social media and not get used by it, it's a really good tool. So there is hmm. some really great value in it. But, you know, you got to be you got to be careful. Yep, great point. And if we could wrap up here, I know one of the favorite segments from uh, my listeners is the lightning round that we conclude with. And uh, just fire some quick questions to you. If you can just give us whatever first comes to mind. You on board for that? Uh, yes, I am. Yes, right, I let's, am. Let's Go rock ahead. and roll. So number one, if you had a quote to live by, what would it be? Um, If I had a quote to live by, what would it be? Uh, there's no place like home. No place like home. What's your favorite book? Um. Oh boy, you know, I'm looking over at my bookcase and what I'm reading right now. It changes a lot, but the book that made the the, I I would say Shoshana. No, uh, well, not be my favorite book. I would say the more you the more you watch, the less you know. Okay, and your favorite and, movie? Oh, and after that, a Curious Mind. Love the Curious Mind. Curious Mind. Interesting. I'll have to check those out. And do you have a favorite movie? Well, my, all of my, uh, it depends on the year. All of my clients are like, like Lee Steinberg is a perfect example. I love Lee. Lee taught me everything. A very famous sports agent. If, if you don't know him or your listeners don't yeah. know him, uh, he's the guy they based the movie Jerry Maguire off of all of my clients. They all have movies based on their lives. Not all of them. A lot of them. Uh, I, I, I Lee was first. So okay, Jerry McGuire. Got it. And by the way, if you haven't heard it, because you probably have a lot of young listeners, go watch it. It's a great story. And Lee Lee is a living legend. Watch what he does in sports. He's been doing it since he was a kid. And Tom Cruise played him in the movie. Yep. Show me the money. Yep. Show me the money. (laughs) And did you have a childhood hero growing up? Uh, yeah. If you played for the Knicks in 69, you were my hero. I, I, I was just with uh, Walt Frazier the other night and was like, you don't understand. Like I'm around a lot of famous people, but you, you were one of my childhood heroes. 69, <laughs> 72, 73 Knicks. That's a religion That's awesome. for me. Yeah. The Knicks aren't what they used to be. <laughs> I know. And, um, they're showing flashes. Yeah. They're showing flashes. Yeah. Maybe someday. And do you have just one tip you could share with a young professional? Uh, yeah, love what you do. If you don't, get out of it. I don't care what you went to college for. Love what you do. I promise you will be more successful if you love what you do. You might not make as much money when you're younger. You will make much more money as you as you age in, in whatever the industry is. You got to love what you do. Otherwise, it's work and work sucks. <laughs> Great. And you travel quite a bit, obviously. Do you have a favorite destination or vacation? Oh, boy. I got a lot. And then I don't travel as much as I used to. Uh, but the Italian Riviera, that's where I want to be. Awesome. And then the last two here, you know, this all started as a wealth show, which I always say it's about well-being, not just wealth in the monetary sense. With that said, do you have something you'd point to as the best investment of your life? Uh, yeah, the best thing I ever invested in was myself. I, t- I will bet the farm on me every single solitary year. Uh, it, odds are it's going to work. Um, 
you know, that said, I, you know, I, I, I've had a lot of great investments throughout my career. I mean, my, my entire business model right now is predicated on only being involved with uh, things that I know I can have direct impact on and, or will make the planet, you know, a better place. I really love that. Um, we're equity partners in most of that. And, you know, you don't make this kind of money in PR, being a PR practitioner and being paid an hourly rate. If you're involved in things that you're passionate about, and that's all we take, we, we literally have lines around the block of people who want us to represent them. We only do the stuff that we're passionate about and we're so much better at it, at, you know, as a result. And, you know, we do, we get to, you know, we get to tilt windmills, we get to change the world. And, you know, the, the history that I have traipsed in and in and out of, you know, the, from the white house to sports to, I mean, I can go on and on is so cool. I, I really love that. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm a student of history Churchill said, history will be kind to me for I intend to write it. I feel like I've been doing that for 41 years. And how great is that? It's just so much fun. Yeah, that's awesome. And what an endorsement for for trying to be an entrepreneur. I think uh, that encapsulates Amen. it all right there. Absolutely. Yep. Well, Eric, thanks so much for coming on the show. I know we covered a lot of ground here, but a lot of takeaways for sure. And I really appreciate your time. No, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. And everyone, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Kaderna podcast. Today, we had the pleasure of listening to Eric Yeverbaum. Keep on tuning in and we will see you next time. This podcast is intended for the general public and for informational purposes only. The show does not provide any recommendations or investment advice regarding any specific account type, service, strategy, or product, or to otherwise act in any fiduciary or other capacity. Please contact a financial professional for guidance and information that is specific to your situation. Brian Caderna does not provide tax or legal advice. Please contact your accountant or legal advisor to discuss your situation. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or Caderna Financial Team, and opinions stated are their own. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. References to specific securities, asset classes, and financial markets are for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a solicitation, offer, or recommendation to purchase or sell a security. Brian Caderna is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, OSJ, 300 Broadacres Drive, Suite 175, Bloomfield, New Jersey, 07003, phone number 973-244-4420. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Caderna Financial Team is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. California Insurance License Number 0K04194.